Well, today is, is a relatively big day in the life of our church. Our Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley uh, venue and chapel are joining us live for our time in the Word. And I, I guess I just wanted to reiterate to all of us together as one congregation how uh, grateful myself and the elders and the staff and the leaders of our church are to uh, all of you for your generosity, your vision, for uh, getting on board with the vision for much of what we're doing with Compelled by Grace. Uh, you know, it's not just a building campaign or a financial campaign. It's really a vision campaign uh, in which we are, you know, leaving a legacy for our kids, impacting our, our world, reaching our community. That's been the vision behind it. And with the opening of our Discovery Kids Center here on the Shea campus, along with our cafe, it really is a, a big day for our church. Now, let me just make a comment about the cafe for all of us together. You know, the vision behind the cafe was not just to have an elegant fellowship hall for our church. Uh, some of you are raised in churches in which, you know, at least I was, where you had fellowship hall. And, and that was kind of, you know, your little relational space where you had potlucks and things like that. And it was for the church. And, and as much as that cafe is for the church, please know the vision behind it uh, really is to be a third place where, you know, you have home as the first place, work as the second place. And where's the third place? The bar, the country club. Starbucks, wherever people go to hang out. And our vision is, was to build a cafe on this campus here that would really be seen as a third place. So that when you are, say, at work or at home and you want to meet a friend, uh, churched or not, say, hey, why don't we meet at the uh, Scottsdale Bibles Cafe? I'm telling you, we've hired a top-notch chef over there named Tanner, uh, a professional barista, and they're using passport coffee, for those of you who care. And it, it really is going to rival, I don't say this in a competitive way, just in a good way, and I won't mention names, uh, Peter Jungle, it's going to rival some of the other places around here that I like and that I'm a fan of, but that we can see our cafe as an alternative to uh, for you to reach out to your friends. That has been created as pure relationship relational space. We're not going to control it. It's the Holy Spirit's that as you have a cup of coffee and a meal, just let's see where God leads and goes with that. And so I, I really have a lot of vision, as you can tell, for that. It opens this weekend. Uh, it's going to be open every day, Monday through Sunday, from 6.30 a.m. till 2 in the afternoon. We're going to start with lunch, or breakfast and lunch. And then on Tuesdays, Wednesday, you won't remember this, but on Tuesdays, uh, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, because we have a lot of people on campus, we're going to keep it open till 9 at night. And so, uh, you know, and who knows where we'll go from there, but the kind of stated hours are 6.30 to 2. So when you think breakfast, lunch, please utilize that and, uh, and, and I think God's going to be honored in that. So it's a great day. Hey, we're about 60% of the way into being out of the Shea Sanctuary here and, and, and toward our new sanctuary. So uh, you guys are doing great. I, I, I know it's been some disruption for some of us. I thank all of you for working with us, for those who have gone to Mountain Valley or Cactus Venue or Chapel, for those who are squeezing in here, uh, all of you for the most part, have done a great job. And, and I'm really grateful for that and for uh, you working with us. Continue to pray. It's coming right along, and, and I believe the Lord is honored. We're in a series on doubt called Seeds of Doubt. We're looking at John chapters 5 and 6 on the things that cause people to doubt Jesus after their initial belief. It's a great series. Let's bow and pray as we turn to the Word. Father, thank you for all that you are to us, for your goodness, for your grace, for your faithfulness. 
uh, for Lord, the fact that you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through your word, through Jesus. I pray that as we look at his words now, uh, that just go pointedly right to the doubts that we have, that God, you might help us to understand what's going on in our hearts and our minds and our souls when we doubt, and that, Lord, as we put our finger on that, that we might respond in the way that you want us to. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as we continue in our series on why and how many of us tend to doubt at times in our life uh, God and his goodness and who he is, uh, I'm going to read for you the next uh, leg in John chapters 5 and 6, verses 19 to 29 of John 5. And I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm not going to put it up here in the monitor. I'm not going to ask you to open your Bibles. What I'd like you to do, if you'd work with me on this, is I want you to to sit there (laughs) and listen to the words of Jesus. And the reason is, is because it hit me in my study this week that, you know, when Jesus first delivered these words up to us, do you all understand? They didn't have monitors up on the stage, and they didn't have open Bibles in front of them. The word was designed for people to hear and absorb into their minds and hearts. And and after we read it, I'll be showing you some scriptures up here on the screen uh, of Jesus as we we explain it. But just listen now to this. Here's the context. Uh, In the first half or first quarter of the Gospel of Uh, John chapter 5, you might remember there was a guy that had been uh, unable to walk for 38 years. And and it's in northwest Jerusalem there, and Jesus had healed the guy. And the Jewish religious leaders got all bent out of shape because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and that was considered work on the Sabbath. So he broke, in their minds, the law. And, And it ended with the Jewish religious leaders pretty ticked. And Jesus makes one statement to them that didn't work. And so now verses 19 to 29 are a further response of Jesus to the doubts that they had based upon this miracle he did. So let's read what he says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this is a very interesting response, wouldn't you, to say the least, wouldn't you say to say the least, that, that Jesus gives in response to the burgeoning doubts of the religious leaders and eventually it will hit the crowds and even the disciples. 
And in a sense, what Jesus is doing here, we're going to parse it out in a second, but what he's doing is laying out in rather clear terms who he is and what he has come to do, and he's doing so with a precision and accuracy that he has not done so up to this point in the Gospel of John. And what you need to know about these words here, maybe you felt this already, is that most people really don't focus on these particular words of Jesus. I mean, to be sure, when was the last time anybody quoted any of this stuff to you uh, from their quiet time? Usually when people talk about the gospel of John, they'll point to the great I am statement of John 8. They'll point to the fact that Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the the great shepherd, uh, the gate, uh, the way, the truth, and the life. Or maybe they'll point to the high priestly prayer in John 17. Hardly anybody ever quotes what's going on here in John chapter 5 because this is, quite frankly, all in the indicative and it's rich, straightforward words about Jesus' relationship as the Son to the Father. And so the way most people treat these words here, and I'm trying to be fair, but I think this is true, is that they read them, say in their quiet time, they go, well, that's kind of nice, next, (laughs) and they just move on. They do what I call a drive-by of these words, and in so doing, we're missing, now watch this, probably one of the most potent experiences or discourses in the Gospel of John, at least by most Bible experts' opinions. Uh, J.C. Ryle is one of the greater 19th century Bible uh, preachers, an Anglican over in Britain. And in his writings on John, he says it this way. He says, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. (laughs) kind of makes you want to understand what Jesus is saying here, doesn't it? Uh, Because this is his response to the burgeoning doubts of the people in his day. And as you and I tend to doubt him today, this is his answer, what we're reading here in John chapter 5. And so we will want to dial in uh, clearly to what he is saying. So here's what I want to do in the 30 minutes we have remaining here right now. I want to do three things uh, with these words of Jesus that he gives us here. First, I want us to understand very clearly what he is claiming here about his relationship with God the Father and the implications of this because it rocked the first century world. Uh, Secondly, I want us to explore briefly, and this is going to shock some of you, but let's just be authentic about it. I want us to explore briefly why the religious leaders back then didn't buy what Jesus is saying. Because we're going to see, they're not going to buy any of this stuff. Uh, They're going to get even more ticked at at what Jesus is saying here. And I want you and I to wrestle with why, because I think it's still going on today in the hearts and minds of many people. And then thirdly, uh, what do we do as a result of what Jesus is claiming here? Those are the three things I want to do. So first, let's understand clearly what Jesus is declaring here about his relationship with God the Father. And in a nutshell, but a very helpful nutshell, here is what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming an unbroken communion with God the Father as himself the Son. And then he's claiming an unvarying resemblance to God the Father. We'll see what we mean by that in a minute. And what Jesus is saying is that when you add those two things together, you realize that there is a sameness of nature 
between the Son and the Father. I know it's kind of heady here, these things, but this is very, very important stuff in understanding who Jesus is and what he what role he wants to play in our lives even today. So let's understand this. First, he's obviously claiming an unbroken communion with God the Father. When you look closely at these words of Jesus that you, we read earlier, one of the first things that Jesus makes clear is that he has an unusual, uninterrupted, let's call it unbroken, communion or intimacy with the Father. Look at verse 19a. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. You know what I find interesting about these words is that if tomorrow morning somebody asked you about your relationship with God, would you describe it this way? I, I don't think so. I don't think most of us would say, well, you know what? I, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I, and that's an unusual way to describe your relationship with God. Then look at verse 20. Uh, Jesus says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. I mean, again, it's an unusual way to describe your relationship with God the Father. I mean, Jesus is suggesting here in these opening words is that he constantly sees the Father, his character, his attributes, his power, his goodness, and he's constantly in touch with the love of the Father. It's the Greek word phileo here. Usually the Greek word agape is used. Phileo means more of a friendship, intimate type of love. This is the only time that Jesus actually refers to him and the Father having a phileo type of love. And so there's a constant communion that Jesus is describing here. Let's face it, the type of communion that goes way beyond what most of us would ever claim about our relationship with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, when you think about it, and I'm trying to think about it from the vantage point of the religious leaders and the crowds in Jesus' day, uh, this and this alone might not be something that would cause a stir. I mean, there are great world religion leaders that claim to be very close to God. Uh, the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, uh, people like that. And so one could maybe argue that Jesus is just putting himself up with them. But not so fast, because he goes on, he's just ramping up now, to take this thought even further when he talks about an unvarying resemblance to God the Father. I actually stole this phrase, i got to tell you that right now. I borrowed it from a 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople by the name of John Chrysostom. And Chrysostom argues uh, in his understanding of John 5 here that what Jesus is getting at is an unvarying resemblance to the Father that's going to have huge implications on who he's trying to tell us he is. Let me show you. In verse 19b, Jesus says, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There's a resemblance there. And then look at verse 21. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Feel it, guys. It's changing right now for the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I mean, it's one thing to claim, an unbroken communion with God. But now he's saying, hey, you know, the Father gives life, and he raises people from the dead. So does the Son. Whoa. And then if that were not enough, look at verse 22. Uh, Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. <laughs> You know, again, these were religious leaders that Jesus was talking to here. They knew the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, let me ask you, uh, who is it that was the only one to judge the nation Israel? 
uh, let's say that a bit louder because our kids would know that in Sunday school. It is God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And what Jesus is saying here is that, yeah, uh, God is the one who judges, but he's handed the football off to me. Why? Because I have a resemblance to God, the Father. And then look at this one too. This had to blow them away, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So add this all up, guys. When it comes to what the Father does, his actions on earth and in heaven, and the power that he has over death and life, and and then all the judgment that he's executed throughout the Old Testament, and even the honor that is due him as God, Jesus says the Son fully resembles. And that's what Jesus is claiming here. And what you need to know is that this isn't going to be lost on the religious leaders. These guys are seminary educated. And they're going to say, sounds like you're equating yourself with God, you lunatic. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Because this unbroken communion that's built upon an unvarying resemblance leads now, guys, to the sameness of nature. Uh, Look at verse 26. This is the mountaintop of his teaching here. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have, say it with me, life in himself. That is a key phrase. What do you think it means when it says that God, the Father, has life in himself? Anybody know? (laughs) It simply means he's the uncreated one, right? I mean, you and I are dependent on things for life. Do you know that? You're dependent upon initial procreation and then birth and now daily sustenance, outside of which you will not have life. You're a dependent entity. God is not dependent. He has life in himself. He is uncreated, and he's not dependent on anything or anyone for life. That's what that phrase means. And Jesus says, I have life in myself. If there was any confusion in their minds back then about what Jesus was claiming, this unbroken communion, this unvarying resemblance, when he got to the sameness of nature, they got it. The New Testament writers would fully get it. Paul the Apostle would go on to say decades later in writing about Jesus in Philippians 2.6, he would say, uh, who being in the very nature God? Because that's what Jesus is claiming here. He's claiming to be God come in the flesh. And so maybe now you can see as we track through the gospel of John, and we're going to apply it to our own lives here in a minute, why these are game-changing words for anyone who might want to know more about God and the spiritual life. I mean, we're less than a quarter of the way through the gospel of John. We're only, I estimate, about 5% into Jesus' words in the gospel of John. And already he's dropping the bomb. Already Jesus is saying, this is who I am. If you doubt God, you're doubting me. If you dishonor the Father, you're dishonoring me. If you don't fear his judgment, you're not fearing my judgment. And as we're going to see in a minute, he's even going to claim, and if you don't believe in me, you don't believe in God. Again, this unbroken communion, this unvarying resemblance that unveils the sameness of nature was a bold claim to say the least. It's huge. And it forever turned the corner for how people thought about God from the first century on. Why is Jesus so central to any life-giving spirituality? Why have Christians for 2,000 years worshipped him as God? It's not complicated, because he is. Why is it that Christians have persistently and yet lovingly maintained that Jesus is the sole pathway to God? 
because he is. And yet don't shoot the messenger. It's not like a bunch of people sat around 2,000 years ago and decided to make this stuff up. No, they just recorded in history what the incarnate Son of God said when he came to this earth. And though centuries later, theologians would form this into the doctrine of the Trinity, in which we see one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they didn't even necessarily need to do that because Jesus was making it very clear from the first day on here who he is and how he is the gateway to God. And what you need to know is that these words were the words that jump-started the entire engine of people's understanding back then of who Jesus is. And I would submit they can jump-start our understanding today as well. So let's be very clear what Jesus is saying here. Unbroken communion, unvarying resemblance that, that reveals the sameness of nature. He is God come for you. That's the bomb he's dropping here on us today. Now, Here's what I need to wrestle with, uh, however. Uh, what I find most interesting about these words here in John 5 is that as we've already established, these words in the context, and that's important, were given as a response, right, to the initial doubts of the Jewish leaders that would eventually become the doubts of the crowds and even the doubts of the disciples themselves as we make our way into the next chapter. And, and though these words of Jesus go right to the core of it all, what you need to know is that they were intended to quell any growing doubt and confusion that people had. But here's what's interesting. It didn't work. In fact, it's going to have the opposite effect on the religious leaders. I mean, don't miss that, guys. Jesus heals a guy in the early part of John chapter 5. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, get all been out of shape and say, you can't heal, it's the Sabbath. And Jesus' response in one sentence that we looked at last week and in 11 sentences here is basically, no, you don't understand. It's me. It's God. I, I, I'm here. You, you don't understand. See, the, the Father is this, and I have unbroken communion with him, and I have this unvarying resemblance to him. In fact, we're of the same nature. I'm the eternal Son of God come to earth, so though I broke a couple of your petty rules, which, by the way, you've added over the years to my holy law, I didn't actually break your holy law at all. Why? Because, you see, the Father is working up until now, and I also am working as the expression of God here on planet earth. That's his answer. <laughs> and they're not going to buy any of it. In fact, they're going to get more angry, more doubtful. They're going to dig their heels in even more as a response to what Jesus is saying here. And here's my question for you. Why? What is going on inside them and what maybe goes on inside you and I today uh, in which these words of Jesus didn't ally their fears and stem the tide of their doubts? I mean, why didn't this revelation of who he is and his eternal identity do the trick? I mean, think about it. These were the seminary-trained dudes of their day. I mean, these were the ones who were the pastors. They were the ones who were teaching everybody about God. And they didn't get it. And I want you to wrestle with why. And though the answer is multifaceted, and we're going to explore some more of it next week and in the following, uh, I want to share with you one thing today that I think is going on inside these Pharisees and Sadducees that I think still goes on in many people's hearts and minds today, even at times you and I, that blocked them from receiving this amazing spiritual declaration of Jesus's. And it's this. Here's why we doubt it. And that is because we didn't invent it. 
And it has very little to do with us. In other words, don't miss this. These words are shot across the bow of our pride. (laughs) And if you don't contend with your pride, when you confront the words of Jesus, then you'll never get or be able to assimilate the words of Jesus into your life. You know, at the end of the day, uh, when we're confronted with the claims of Jesus, uh, there's actually two shots across the bow of our pride. And I'm going to explore one in detail right now, and the other one I'm just going to mention. The the one we'll explore in detail, as I've hinted to in our point here, is that Jesus' words and claims many times do not collate with what you and I might think about God when left to our own devices. And we'll explore that more in a second here. Uh, The second reason I think this is a shot against our pride is that much of Jesus' teaching, and we see it here in these 11 verses, has more to do with his relationship with God the Father. In fact, he talks about that like a scratch CD, just keeps mentioning that. And and it really doesn't have a lot to do with you and I. And, And the problem is, is that we've been raised ever since we were little guys and gals, let's face it, to think that we're the center of the universe, and that our success and that our happiness matters most. And along comes Jesus. And quite frankly, all he seemed to talk about is his relationship with God the Father and who he was and all this. And when he did get around to us, he basically says, you're a sinful mess and you need a Savior and I'm him. That was his basic message. And so you're like, oh, really, really? Don't you have anything more than that? And it's like, no, he doesn't. And again, you and I are kind of offended by that because we're like, don't you understand? Don't you understand my life? I need an answer to this. I need an answer to that. I need you to solve this. And he said, yeah, okay, I'm your savior. (laughs) And and let me talk to you about my father. And and let me tell you about my relationship with the father and and the love that I experienced from him and who he is. That's what Jesus talks about. We're like going, really, really, that's all you got for us? And we're kind of offended by that when we're honest with ourselves. Uh, The the first thing there is actually the one that really blows me away the most. Um, I would submit to you why the Pharisees really, really struggled with what Jesus said here is because it went against the grain of what they thought about God. As I mentioned earlier, these guys had studied the Old Testament for years. And like many of us today, they thought they understood rightly what the Bible was saying. That's where you got to be careful, however. You see, we know for a fact in the first century, the religious leaders were very convinced that God was going to physically redeem the nation Israel and bring back the glory days of David and the united monarch. We know they believed that. And they were hoping Jesus would do that. We know for a fact that they believed that God was more concerned with behavioral righteousness and adherence to the Old Testament law more than anything else. They believed that. They believed that God was very proud and on board with the current religious structures of Jesus' day. Kind of like we do today. We say, hey, God's really proud of Scottsdale Bible Church, right? I mean, we think that way, and they thought that way about their system back then, too. And they firmly believed, rightly so, from the Old Testament, that God is one monotheism and that there could never be any expression of God like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are are you starting to see? They had all these things that they believed about God that they had spent their life honing. And here's my point. When Jesus showed up on the scene and began teaching the things that he did, they didn't always collate with much of what the establishment that in that day concluded about God and his kingdom. And when this happens, and I'm going to submit it happens to you and I at times today, there's only one or two choices they had. They were either going to swallow their pride and admit they were off base a bit and receive what Jesus was saying, or they were going to dig in their heels, hold firm to their skewed theological thinking, and never find what their souls were longing for right in front of them in Jesus himself. Uh, Those are the only two choices you got. 
Either you're going to contend with your pride and drop it and listen to Jesus, or you're going to say, dude, I don't want anything to do with what you're saying to me right now. You're a lunatic. I, 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 I really believe that that, that that was happening then. We, we know that because some of the religious leaders, very few, but some did get on board with Jesus saying, think of the priest Zechariah, or I think Nicodemus did, certainly Joseph of Arimathea, all good Jewish leaders that dropped their pride and listened to what Jesus was saying, even though it went against the grain of what they thought God was like. But the reality is, is that very many of them didn't. And so the very teaching and truth, now listen to this, the very teaching and truth that Jesus gave them that was designed to stem the tide of their doubts actually became the fuel for more doubt. Who would have thought? And yet it was pride that was the ultimate culprit. Don't don't be misled on that. It was pride living in them, and I think us, that led to that kind of doubt. Uh, what is pride? I, I looked it up this week, not in the Greek, but in English. Webster's Dictionary says this, pride is inordinate self-esteem. That's what you and I mean by the use of the English word pride. And I think that's right. Uh, pride is whenever you and I think a little bit too highly of ourselves <laughs> and our own abilities, right? So you're in an argument with your spouse, and uh, you're digging your heels in, and, and you're ticking him or her off because you won't bend, because you are what? Right. Many times, what is that? Let's just call it for what it is. It's pride. Because everybody and their brother is looking around you going, you're an idiot. You ought to give in on this one. You're wrong. And yet it's pride that keeps us from admitting that. Have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever experienced that. I'm going to pray for the rest of you because I experienced that. Somebody actually sent me a really funny thing this week. Somebody, I shared last week about me and Kim arguing from Missouri all the way through Texas, you know, and, and somebody actually sent me a sign to put around my neck that says, I am wrong. That's what he sent me. He said, that'll solve all your marital disputes. And, and he's probably in some, uh, he's not right, but I mean, there, there's some things in which my pride is, is working overtime. Amen? It is. And, and in you too. That's what pride is. See, here's the problem, however. It, it might be funny when it comes to our you know, human relationships, even though it's not, but when it comes to God, it's super dangerous. And yet our, our world today, I mean, our world functions on the fuel of pride. We, we forget. I mean, I, I look at academic institutions, CNN, MSNBC, politicians. We forget that we are finite, fallen, and capable of massive self-deception. And really, one of the great truth claims of God through Christianity is drop that pride because you're not what you think you are. And I love you, but you're walking around like a proud peacock when in all reality, your thoughts about me because you've been left to your own devices are not as accurate as you think they are. And unless you and I are willing to think like that, unless we're willing to drop our guard with God, then I'm telling you, when the words of Jesus confront a prideful personality, sparks fly. That's exactly what was going on in Jesus' day. They were like, there's no way, dude, you're right about God because I already know him. And what I think is right in my own mind is what is right. You see, I, 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 I get this. I, you know, I've had a, it's been a fun year for me. I, I don't mind sharing my age. Maybe as I get older, I will mind. But I'm 51 this year, and I've been a Christian for 34 years and a pastor for 25 and, and I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. So it was kind of a cool year for me. It was the first third of my life, like being clueless about God. And the next two-thirds growing in my relationship with God. That's the only thing I, I can celebrate that at 51. At 52, the math won't work anymore. But at 51, it, it, it's perfect. And, uh, and, and, and I clearly remember 
before I became a Christian that when somebody would try to talk to me about the words of Jesus, I'd be like, really, really? You think I'm interested in that? I'm fine, thank you. I understand God. I understand life. I, in fact, I have no interest in God, but I, I'm just fine. Leave me alone. And that was the way I thought. Again, it was, it was just pride. I assumed as a self-contained entity who was born as a you know, well-educated American home that I didn't have a need at all for that kind of garbage. But when I was 17, uh, God, through a miraculous group of uh, circumstances, gave me a thirst that I couldn't quench. And many of you know my story. And I started seeking out literally the, the truth. And when I was confronted with the words of Jesus, they made sense to me. But there was some humility in that. There was some admitting that I didn't know what I thought I knew. Now, now here's where it really gets thick, however. You would think that now that's the end of the story, right? You would think that as somebody who then became a follower of Jesus for the last 34 years, that that would never happen again, right? You would think that as somebody who's now reading this book every day and hopefully has a humble heart, that everything he would read and everything that came from Jesus, I'd go, oh, that's great. That's awesome. That makes sense. I get it. But not always so. And this is why what we're looking at today when it comes to our own doubts is so important. Because I can tell you, and I'm not going to give you examples because I just don't want to. But the reality is, is that there are times that even now, after 34 years, I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading the words of Jesus to the apostles, and I sit there and go, really? 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 That doesn't make sense. I don't know, I don't know if I like that. That seems kind of harsh. Or, or that, that doesn't even make sense to my mind. You know, theologians say, well, it's super rational. What does that mean? It's a fancy way of saying that it doesn't make sense to me, and you want me to accept it anyways. And that's exactly true. See, there's times even now, and let's just be honest in the house of God, that you read the Bible, you read the words of Jesus, and you don't like them. Can you relate to that sometimes? I do. I read what he says about marriage or, 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 or ethics or morality. I sit there and go, oh my gosh, really? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Well, that's obviously a word picture he's using there. He doesn't really mean gouge it out. <laughs> well, I don't know. He said gouge it out. And I go, really? Couldn't you have thought of a better way of saying it than that? Because that's hard to preach. I'm like going, you know, really? You know, and, and anybody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back at all is not fit to follow. Really? 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 Even if I take a peek, I'm not fit to follow you? I mean, these are tough things that Jesus says. And, and we soften them and we water them down. Worse yet, tell me if this isn't true, we pick and choose what we want to believe, right? We do. We honestly, many Christians today, and it drives me bonkers, but I do it too. We almost treat the New Testament like a big grand buffet. We're sitting at the buffet. We're kind of hungry. We're going to take that and take that and take that, but we're leaving all the rest of that stuff. And we go to our seat and we, we gorge on our meal and we say, I'm not touching. It's just amazing. We, we pick and choose what we want. The Reformers had a phrase for this. Uh, 500 years ago, they said, no, 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 we accept the whole counsel of God. All of it. It's just that, here's my point, if you don't drop your pride, if you think you know more than God, you'll never, ever be able to hear the whole counsel of God. Amen? It, it's really true. And, and again, I just think you need to process that for your own life because I, I promise you that many times, I'd say almost 50% of the time, when you and I are in doubt mode, we think it's about intellectual things or other things. It's really not. We're usually in doubt, tell me this isn't true. Either one, because we've run into a circumstance in which we feel hurt and that God isn't there for us. And many times that's what's going on there. 
And, and, and other times, it's because we think we might know better and we don't understand what God is up to here and we're ticked at him. And again, I know those are very real circumstances. I get it. I get there myself in my spiritual life. But at the end of the day, though it's hard to hear, what's really going on there is your pride. Because you're basically telling God, I know better than you. You're not coming through for me. And you're God. You should be doing that. Uh, Mark Twain had a great way of saying this. Let me see if we have this quote here too. Yeah, he, said, he said at one point, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been returning to favor ever since. You see, that's what you and I do. Uh, God made us in his image, and, and, and doggone it, we're going to return that favor, and we're going to make God as we want him to be. The only problem is, and this is the only problem, it's so cool, God has revealed himself to you. He has shown you who he is. He has come to you in Jesus, and you can't remake that to what you want it to be. It's objective reality, but it's reality that screams to you, he loves you, he cares for you. But you got to drop your pride or you'll never receive his words. So what do we do with that? Uh, Jesus actually helps us with this in this passage here. He gives us two things of homework, if you will. And that is that he tells us to examine closely who he is and what he has said and then respond with belief. Uh, look at verses 23 and 24. Uh, verse 23 is really powerful. Jesus says that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, now, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, how many times does the word honor appear here? One, two, three, four times. So in one sentence, he repeats a word four times here. I told you before that repetition is usually an issue of emphasis in the New Testament, and that's what Jesus is doing here. And that word honor is an interesting word. It's the Greek word tamao, and it literally means, now watch this, to examine something, to consider something, to evaluate something, to size it up, and then declare its worth. That's what we do when we honor. We engage our minds and our hearts, and we size something up, and we say, here's how much worth it has. Teddy Roosevelt Great story when he was uh, going across Wyoming the very first time and, and then hit the west side of Wyoming and got to the Grand Tetons and then went up to Yellowstone. Writes that the second he saw that beautiful mountain range and then went up and saw the Grand Canyon and Old Faithful and the, uh, the, the hot springs and all of that, he said this land will never be owned by a private individual. It will forever be a public national park. That's what Roosevelt said the second he saw it. What was he doing? He was just, have you ever been there? I mean, I've been there so many times, I can, I can understand his experience. He was looking up at those beautiful mountains. He was evaluating their worth. And then he ascribed honor to them by saying these things need to be protected. And he did the same with Yellowstone. See, that's what Jesus says to do with him and with God the Father. But don't be afraid to evaluate the words of Jesus and look honestly, unbroken communion, unvarying resemblance, the same nature as God the Father and say, wow, it really is God come to earth for me. Something that never happened in the history before 2,000 years ago. It hasn't happened since, but he did it for you. He came, and he came to die on a cross for your sins and for mine so that we might be brought to God. And we need to honor the worth. We need to ascribe worth to that in your mind. And then the second thing you need to do is then believe. Uh, because look at verse 24. We just read verse 23. Verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, say it with me, and believes him who sent me as eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And, and so the second thing Jesus says here is that as you honor me, as you evaluate the worth to your very soul, 
then believe. And here's what's so cool about this. Now, I know I've given you a lot of stuff to think about, but, but this, I, this is so clear to me how it works that I've experienced so many times. You, you respond by initially believing. Then, as we've seen, you go through doubts. And as we're seeing today, part of the doubts is your pride working overtime in your soul. So what's the remedy to pride? Watch this. It's a fresh look at Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't look at the church. Don't look at me. Don't look at your friends. That'll depress you. Uh, don't look at, at all these things. Look at Jesus. And Jesus says, as you take a fresh look at me, as you honor me, your faith will be found again. You're going to come full circle. And, and that's the beauty of what Jesus is saying here. And lest you doubt how strong this is, Jesus then says, when you do this, you will change. How do we know he says that? Look at how he ends this passage here, and with this we're done. He says, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Some say, wow, it sounds like works righteousness here, that, you know, really heaven's going to be like this balancing scale of good and evil. That's not what he's saying here. He's already said that the requirement for eternal life is to believe. He made that very clear just three verses earlier. So this verse here, and you guys know I like cars. You'll like this, Archie. This verse here is the exhaust fumes of belief. <laughs> this is what comes after belief. See, the engine of our, of our lives is faith and belief and trust, the exhaust fumes. What we leave behind us are the good works. And for those who believe, they're going to be good, God says. They're going to change. They're going to become the people that he wants them to be. And not to be too negative, but for those who don't, they're probably going to continue just moving on with the flesh and what their own lives say they should be, which is a crapshoot at best. And so the reality is, is that Jesus is saying that not only is belief the enemy of pride, and the enemy of doubt. It's actually that which helps you be the better person that God wants you to be. It's amazing how that works. Take hope today. Take hope, whether you're a seeker, whether you're a brand new believer, whether you're a veteran believer for years. But we all go through similar processes in our soul. And there's times that you're going to doubt God. Be open to the fact that maybe your pride <laughs> is the culprit in this one. And as it is, look to Jesus afresh. Honor him. Believe in him. It'll be good for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for the words of Jesus here that though they are not popular words, as we've seen today, are very potent and life-giving words. Words that help us understand him rightly and the Godhead rightly and respond in such a way that re-engages our faith and trust in you. God, I pray for any person here at our campuses or online or our venues that might be really hurting today. They came in kind of beat up. I pray today they might feel your words and hand of love upon them. They might know that you care for them and you're just a gnat's eyelash away from them every moment of every day and that you're calling them once again to a fresh view of yourself and your son, which will give them faith. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. We all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. 